Welcome to the teaching podcast for Eubank Baptist Church. We are all about knowing more about Jesus and inviting others to do the same. We would love for you to join us on our campus on Sunday mornings at 8.30 or 10.45 and Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. This podcast is a place that you can listen to any teachings that you might have missed from our Sunday morning worship experiences. To stay connected, you can check out our website at www.eubankbaptist.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Eubank Baptist Church and Instagram at Eubank underscore BC. Thank you for being a part of the conversation and let's keep pursuing Jesus together. What a beautiful song and beautiful statement for God's people to know that it is well, no matter what, God's in control. Well, I don't know about you late risers this morning, but when I woke up, well, I had never been to sleep, so at the tail end of my insomnia, I saw that it's snowing again. And if you're keeping tabs whatsoever, that's the third time this week that it snowed. Talk about March Madness. We, I've experienced March Madness in a few different ways this week, so there's the, the multiple snow uh, occurrences. And uh, basketball, there's been some great basketball uh, games going on, so that was fun. We are a basketball family anyways. But also, we took a trip, we don't go there very often, to the the Peddler's Mall up beside Big Lots. You know where that is up there, uh, North 27? We found some unique items, and there were some unique people confronted with some unique smells um, and got to hear all sorts of unique words as I was walking through there. It really is, I was waiting for somebody behind me with a hot shot. You know, if you've ever been to a livestock auction, whenever a goat's not really doing what they want it to do and they either kick the guts out of it or stick the hot shot to it, that's what I felt like in the Peddler's Mall. They were herding us through there, cussing at us, stinking. It was, it was wild. So I don't, I mean, that's, that's about as wild as I want for a Saturday afternoon. Uh, so a few, few weeks ago, a month and a half ago, something that all runs together um, after Christmas for me until we start working again. And I mentioned this morning at first service, our family actually loves snow. Love it. Love Christmas, the whole winter season. And about mid-November, if we see flurries, man, we're all glued to the window. We're like, yes, finally some snow. But now we're looking towards Easter. We're done with the snow. So now I woke up and it was just, just begrudgingly looked out at these white flurries coming down and it was, it was heartache. But anyhow, a few weeks ago, uh, I was questioning God's word in my life. I was dealing with some things uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally that I was trying to work through. And that's a big deal for me because I'm not a very emotional person. So it was really, I was making some leaps and bounds. And my question was this, if the Lord says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, how can it be that Christians are so persecuted all over the world? How can it be that Christians suffer from cancer and disease and sickness and even persecution on our local level and our friend groups, schools, workplace, wherever. Lord, you say your yoke is easy and burden is light. But Lord, I'm segregated from the people that I love. People in my own family were segregated from because of my affinity for Christ. So it's difficult, right? And I couldn't, I couldn't really comprehend it. It was, it was a, a personal revelation of sorts that I came to, and through, through studying and prayer, it brought me to Luke chapter 14 is what we'll be talking about today. And you'll see as we talk through it how they can go hand in hand, and I'll kind of button it up at the end and make it all make sense for you, hopefully. And we're going to be talking about the cost of discipleship. Right and and before and my lack of maturity, you know, I considered everyone to be a disciple, right? And I f- 
and scripturally, we all have that call on us to be disciples, but we also have salvation in Jesus, and then we have a next level whenever you are fully committed to following Jesus and doing the work of the cross and really following in Jesus' footsteps. So we'll be looking in chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. We'll read with it and then back up, kind of gnaw on a little bit, see what tastes good, see what doesn't, figure it out. We'll go from there. Uh, to give you a little backdrop, these verses, the story comes just after uh, Jesus teaching about the great uh, messianic supper, right? The nearly all-inclusive, everybody's invited, you know, it was controversial, and, but a lot of people got excited. They were hopped up, right? They, this is, a, this is a, something new, it's a big happening. There was no segregation. Everybody was invited. And then what we run into is what we see here in the verses we're going to be reading. So if you don't care, stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Starting in 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Jesus, we thank you for new life. Grateful for the opportunity of salvation, God, that you provided through your son. I pray as a church, Lord, the old saying, it takes a village that each one of us does our part in nurturing young life through Christianity, that we encourage God and heed the warning that none of us shall make one of your little ones stumble. Father, be with us, strengthen us to do that. Make these words fresh on us this morning, Lord. Let us gain from it new understanding so that we may be revitalized through it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can sit down. So here they are, people caught up in the hype, following Jesus by the masses. And they were traveling with him and he turned and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate. Well, firstly, there was a, there was a, a problem with large crowds in Jesus. We saw this several places in scripture and he seems to distrust large crowds, right? For him, that meant trouble. And he was aware that many of them were just part of a popular movement. They were, they were caught up in the hop, so to speak. So there's a story about a Jesus movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And have you heard of the uh, new movie, Jesus Revolution? 
Anybody? I'm, I'm the only one. There we go. It's, this is a safe area. Safe. You can do it. Nobody. It's a judgment-free zone, I promise you. So what happened in the late 60s, early 70s, this movement in Southern California brought in an influx of young converts into churches, a part of the surfer crowd, if you will, right? Long hair, suntans, most likely sweaty, salt water on them somewhere, right? Uh, swimming trunks all the time. Uh, what were those uh, strappy uh, Birkenstocks, right? Sandals, something like that. There was uh, an explosion of new Jesus music, Jesus keychains, newspapers, comic books, and all this stuff was good, and there was a lot of good done. There was a lot of lasting good. But in as much lasting good as there was, there was just as much of those whose allegiance fell short of discipleship. Right? They also got caught up in this movement, the hop. So there are many leaders that were part of the Jesus, Jesus movement that are still in church leadership today all across the country. So it was good and did have lasting impact. But in the wake of it, caught up some people, right? And that's the same thing that happened with this. After talks of the Messianic Supper, the, all these people were caught up in this hype and following Jesus. So... You imagine them traveling with him from city to city, probably setting up tent cities. I'm sure it was a big, big ordeal. So he cooled the enthusiasm of these eager candidates for discipleship by urging them to consider the cost. Just think about it. Just really think about it for a minute. What you're wanting to do, what you're asking for. Our current evangelical circles kind of spread a sugar-coated gospel, right? They lift up all the good things, all the benefits, and there are many. Don't misunderstand me. They lift these things up, and by omission, don't tell of the true cost of discipleship, the segregation, the persecution the hardship above natural humanity that we get from following Jesus. Everybody, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, we have certain amounts of difficulties that we go through, and then we proclaim Christ. It just gets that much more intensified. So he was urging them to count the cost. And then he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he turns to them and using the strongest possible terminology he can to get their attention, he uses the word hate. Now that's a very distinctive and decisive word. It's not a gray area word. It's not neutral. The Greek word messio translates literally to hate, detest, abhor. Those are strong words. Strong words used by Jesus. And if you take this literally, it's shocking. He's telling us to hate our family, our mother, brothers, sisters, What's this mean? How can he say this? Well, Jesus means to shock. He means to jolt. He means to provoke thinking in the best way that he knows how. And that is to use these powerful, forceful words. Depending on your translation, it may say love less, but you lose the force of the word hate. And I think that that's what's going on here, that he was using uh, these words intended to shock and to challenge these people. So how can it be that Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, but then to hate our closest loved ones? Right, do this for these people, but hate our closest loved ones. What is going on? 
So Jesus using hyperbole like he does an overstatement of the fact to really drive a point home for maximum impact. We've seen it other times in Matthew chapter 5, cutting off of one's hand. Matthew 19, a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Luke chapter 6, accepting violence and robbery without resistance. Luke chapter 6, later on, verses in 41, a plank in your eye. So Jesus states something in a striking, unforgettable way, so it challenges us and forces us to consider it. Right? we got to think. And I think that's what he's doing here to the crowd that's following. So he's contrasting our allegiance to him versus our family. So too many other places in scripture does it tell us to take care of family members using hyperbole. Again, Jesus is trying to make sure our allegiances are in order, right? We've got our top priority, our top priority, which is Jesus. And that should take precedence over all, no matter how close the person is. And it's hard for Americans really to even comprehend this. To see our family as a potential hindrance to our relationship with Christ. Because we don't, we don't operate like that. But in school, whenever I was learning about religion, they teach you that in the Muslim religion, their, their family, their culture... The religion is all incorporated. It's all together. So if they denounce one thing, be it their family, their culture, lifestyle, religion, they denounce the others. So this was dynamically shocking to these people who lived during that time. Jesus was saying, these people, this way of life that you've been used to your entire existence... Turn your back on it and follow me. That's a hard pill to swallow. And there's a story of a young a Jewish schoolgirl who was handicapped, and her biggest fear was to tell her family about her new relationship she had found in Jesus Christ because they would excommunicate her. Right? They, would, they would cut her off from the family, and being handicapped, you can imagine how disastrous that would be. And we see it all through the New Testament, as well as down through church history, where the ultimatum was given to people to either choose family or choose Jesus. And on the flip side of that, that's not an excuse to treat your family members who aren't Christians with any kind of resentment, right? Or to be unusually harsh to them because you know, they don't come to church or whatever, and you say, well, I'm going to put Jesus above you and not even try to minister to you or whatever. When 1 Timothy 5a, Paul writes, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the fact of the matter is, we are called to take care of our closest family members, but we have to keep our priorities in check. We've got to keep Jesus above all. Above all. No matter how painful, difficult, or misunderstood that it may come across to is our family. Our parents' wishes don't come first. Jesus' direction does. Our spouses and children's desires don't come first, but Jesus comes first. And I see this a lot, and I've said this in first service, and I saw it a a lot usually in athletics that we've been involved with over the years. But you run into these mothers and fathers who, who are child worshipers, right? They put their children above Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Love your child. I mean, love them like crazy. Pour into them like you wouldn't believe. But there has to be a line drawn in the sand where Jesus is above them. Jesus must come first before even your children. It's detrimental to your children to put them above your Savior. Detrimental to you. So you've got to make Jesus 
your first priority. And even though people have used uh, that scripture as an excuse not to care for their families, their poor examples don't negate or invalidate the words of Jesus here. So Jesus said to the crowds, unless you place me as the first priority over every other priority in your life, you cannot be my disciple. These words speak to us now in the same way they did then. You can't weasel out of the impact and force and the way that I was trained to study scripture is it can't mean for us now what it didn't mean for them then. The implication is the same for us as it is for them so many years ago. Jesus has to be our top priority above ball games, above fishing trips, above cooking supper at whatever time, against anything. And listen, I'm not perfect. I'm guilty of it just as anyone else. But the difference is taking recognition for what you've done and changing and creating Jesus as your first priority when you've not done so. Are you try- Does that make sense? So moving on into verse 27, he says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And there's about 120 different sermons in this one verse right here. We're not going to expound on it too much, go into great detail, but it means that we must accept the death of our own self-directed life every day. I've talked about this before up here, discipline of waking up and giving your day to Jesus to be your, your bearing for the day makes all the difference. And I was telling them in first service also, whenever my feet hit the floor, I'm like a marathon runner to get to the coffee pot as hard as I can, right? Then after that, coffee first, and then I'll go sit down, and I'm split between two things. I can pick up the Bible, pick up the devotional, get in God's Word, or I can get on Facebook Marketplace because I'm highly addicted to it. I'm a junkie for junk, right? That's why I was at the Peddler's Mall. I'm just going to throw it out. If this was an AA meeting, it's, my name's Brad, and I love junk. So that's, that's me. You could, Tina, she does not have that affinity about my character. <clears throat> so, but in doing that, it, it don't take a second for us to get distracted and start scrolling for an hour about whatever cars are listed on marketplace or motorcycles, which is my personal favorite. Just a split second, and we're distracted. And then before you know it, you've got to get your shoes on. You've got to go to work. You've got to go feed cattle or stick a hot shot to a goat or whatever the case may be. So the decision to let your first fruits there be in the spirit, when you first wake up and get that coffee, die to yourself, do not pick up, the local newspaper, the tournament bracket, whatever. Pick up the word of God. Make the heading you're going to every day, Jesus Christ. So he says you've got to die to yourself daily and be willing to face whatever physical and emotional, um, physical, emotional, or social persecution that ensues from it. And just like I told you a few weeks ago, being a disciple is most like other things of high importance in the kingdom. It requires the full committal of a person's will. There's no gray area here. There's no gray area. Nothing less will do. So in order to illustrate this, Jesus goes on and tells two parables. Picking up in 28 and 30, it says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if it has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. And again, if you're like me, I've just 
alluded to my biggest secret, I, I heart junk, right? I've got projects everywhere. I've got, I mean, it's sickening, right? <laughs> and the thing is, so I've got a, a motorcycle on the stand in the garage right now, and it's been there all year. I've maybe touched it one time. Well, I was on the old faithful marketplace, and I saw another really great deal on a motorcycle. I was like, well, I need that one. But I stopped. I digress. I, I remain constituting my decision not to get any more junk. But it's like that, right? We'll get caught up in projects, whether it's remodel, junk, whatever. Fill in the blank for what your stronghold is. <clears throat> we get all these projects built up in various states of completion, and even some of it began with great intentions, right? I always like to say that everything starts with good intentions. But then other things come up and you lose interest. And, so, and you tell yourself, sometimes I'll get to it. And sometimes you do. Other times you hide it behind the building and put logs over it. You know, it just, just, just rust away and do whatever with it. <laughs> but this isn't good enough for discipleship. We cannot do the same thing. So Jesus gives us an example from a construction project. So the Greek word translates here into tower. And a tower is a pretty daunting thing to build, right? I've built some pretty large things before, but never an actual tower. So I would say that if Jesus is using that as an example, all the thought and consideration it would take to build a tower against whatever adversities that come with that, how much more important is discipleship that we should consider it even more so than building the tower? So you must carefully calculate the cost. And down in Tennessee where we used to live, and, and I don't know if you know this or not, but the great volunteer state is about to be taken over by kudzu. Like, it's the craziest thing. Kudzu is just running wild down there. Like, it's insane, really. So anyhow... We, there's this road we used to go down to go visit her uh, brother, and it was uh, named River Road, appropriately. On the way down there, there was a kudzu embankment, you know, trees just of kudzu. You know, they look like a silhouette. You drive at night, there'd be silhouette formations of, like, old witches made out of kudzu. It's weird, but... So over a amount of time, one day we drove down through there, and the kudzu had been cut back, and a building pad had been leveled off. Somebody was starting to build a home there, and I knew this gentleman. Well, guys were coming in there like crazy. They delivered block. They, they did the found, poured the footers, built the foundation, did the floor, framed it up. Man, they were really moving on with this thing. Put the roof on, got it in the dry shingles, did the house wrap, and we drove by one day, and they were just like they had been raptured. They were vanished. Nothing remained there. No equipment, no vehicles, no ladders, no building materials, nothing. They were just gone gone weeks turned into months nobody ever returned months turned into years and the the kudzu started taking this place back over so the many years after that we were still down there this place became a monument of this gentleman's failure he did not consider the cost he did not calculate the cost, and I'm sure if we drove down there today, it would still remain just a, just a lump in the kudzu where this house is underneath it. So Jesus is saying, if you don't have the means or the willingness to see it through, don't even start the journey. Discipleship is a decision that requires the utmost seriousness. It requires full commitment. Lukewarm Christians are detrimental to the cause of Christ. And they come about, they're a byproduct of the sugar-coated gospel. Right, because there are some uh, televangelists that preach health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, then whenever people jump on the Christian bandwagon and things get difficult, they jump ship. 
Reminds me of the, uh, the uh, parable of the seed sower. Right, Some are cast on the rocks and burn up immediately, and some are cast in shallow soil, and they're in there for just a little bit. But whenever the wind and sun comes, they get burned up. And that is a byproduct of the sugar-coated gospel. The cost of discipleship was not calculated by these people. And I say it's detrimental because when others see you profess Christ publicly and a group of peers, whatever, and then see you out doing Lord knows what, that is not a Christian activity whatsoever, what does that do to unbelievers? What do they see? They say, oh, well, he's not really a Christian. If that's what being a Christian is, I, you know, that's what I'm already doing, so I must be a Christian too. Do you understand? And moving on to the next parable in 31 through 33, it's another parable about planning and assessment, but this time in a military context. 31 through 33 says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, will he send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So Israel, being located on the highway between some major powers of the time, Egypt, Egypt was to the south and to the north was Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. And Palestine had seen marching armies and bloody battlefields the entire time. So the kings were required to decide if they could win a battle or if they could not, they need to determine that they were outnumbered and then try to make a resolution to a stronger commander for peace as opposed to going to the slaughter of war. And there's a story that I had just learned uh, through this. My history teacher would probably be disappointed in me, but said near the beginning of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur was charged with the defense of the Philippines against the invading Japanese. His desperate calls for reinforcements went unheeded, and gradually his men retreated to the Bataan Peninsula and the fortress of, the Manila and Har uh, of in the Manila Harbor. Though MacArthur chafed and fumed, his military superiors took a tough but clear-eyed assessment of their abilities to carry on and win a battle thousands of miles from their, supplies line, from their supply lines. So they decided to cut their losses and not fight. It meant the loss of thousands of soldiers and resulted in the infamous Bataan Death March. But only after victories in the South Pacific established supply lines was the Philippines liberated and Manila freed. Bravado does not count. Careful consideration of our ability to follow through does. Does that make sense? So when we get caught up in the hype and the grand gestures of everything that's involved, think about the people in this Jesus movement, the ones who were not serious, not dedicated, how they came in with great bravado but then fell to the wayside. They did not consider what they were going to have to go through. And it reminds me, uh, too, of Pearl Harbor. The Japanese didn't consider the cost. They were trying to push us into a negotiation, right? So they overestimated the benefit and underestimated the cost of our retaliation and what we would do in sight of what they, they committed against us. And that's what Jesus is talking about, not the times with uh, Gideon and his band of 300 where God helped his people in face of insurmountable odds. He's talking about the normal situations that kings and nations face now, that businesses and families make on a day-to-day -day basis, just the general considerations that you make. Can we afford this? Can we pay this bill on time? If not, and we get it, how can we stave off bankruptcy? 
right? These are, we are counting the cost. And I know anyone worth their weight in salt in here knows pretty well not to go get something that you can't afford, right? That's pretty easy cost to consider. And Jesus is saying for discipleship, how much more consideration should go into that? So he says, consider ahead of time whether or not you're willing to become his follower. It'll take everything that you have and more, much more. Discipleship will figure into every future decision of your life. And the will of God must be first priority from now on. And he says, if you don't have the ability or willingness to follow through, then don't do it at all. Now, I'm not talking about salvation, right? You can come to salvation through Jesus and then just sit gripping the, per the church pew until he returns. You can do that. Jesus calls us to discipleship. You take the next level and you get committed to him. That's what we're talking about. He says, don't move toward a battle that you will surely lose. Figure out your resources and what you're willing to commit ahead of time. If you don't have it, don't commit it. He says, halfway measures aren't adequate. It's the same thing that I said earlier in weeks, weeks ago. There's no gray area when it comes to things that matter in the kingdom of God. Right Now, there are those gray areas that we won't get into that theologians and philosophers debate about in the Word of God. We're talking about the meat and potatoes here, what God has clearly stated for us in black and white. There are no gray areas. It takes the full committal of a person's will to be a disciple of Christ. And he moves on in 33. He says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That's a rough one for some of us, because some of us got a lot of stuff. Some of us got a lot of stuff, and it, and it kind of gets us in its grips, right? We don't want to turn loose of this stuff. But Jesus is speaking figuratively here. So even though you have these things, he's wanting you to drop your pride in these things, take up your cross, and submit, commit all that for kingdom work, right? Give it all to the glory of God. He's speaking figuratively here. And we've seen this property and the disciples, right? And the, the abandonment of everything that they put aside, all their securities that they laid down in order to follow Jesus. Everything that they had repurposed for the glory of God. We see the attitude personified in Peter, James, and John whenever they leave their nets behind to follow him. We see it in Levi when he leaves his lucrative tax collecting business to follow Jesus. We see it in Zacchaeus, where he gives half his fortune to the poor. And then in, 18 verses, in verses 18 to 22, we see the rich young ruler who's unwilling to renounce his wealth to follow Jesus. And he goes, he departs sadly away. So I ask you this morning, what is it in your life if you could put a finger on one thing that's keeping you from the full committal of your will to Jesus, what is that? There may be nothing. You may be all in. You, you might have you know, pushed it all to the center of the table. But then again, you may not. There may be something in the back of your mind that you're like, yeah, Jesus, you can have it all except my affinity for fishing or sports or whatever. Whatever takes your time away from Christ. Whatever you put in priority over Jesus and learning about him. So money 
held a rich young ruler's heart. Thirty-four and thirty-five. He starts with salt is good. <laughs> Agreed. Jesus, that's delicious. I love salt. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So finally, Jesus is discussing salt, right? Salt of the time was considered essential for life. Not only for seasoning, but for preservation. And we're used to purchasing it just off the store shelf, right? You can go in any dollar store, there's 10,000 around here, and pick up a container of salt, no matter what size you want. Right there, easy to grab. It's refined, it's purified, it's great to season food with, it's good to go. Well, back in the days whenever Jesus walked the earth, the salt that they had was captured through evaporation process that they, that they drew water out of the Dead Sea. And then it was mixed uh, with other minerals of greater or lesser concentrations of other salts to get the desired outcome. But through that chemical compound, it's po it was possible for all the sodium chloride that gives it the salty taste to be leached out of their mixture. So it's impossible for it to lose its tang entirely, salt is. But it is entirely possible for this salt to look like true salt has the appearance on the outside of true salt, but has actually lost all of its saltiness. Are you tracking with me here? He's talking about Christians. He's talking about us. It's very capable for us to walk the walk and talk the talk, but be as lost as a goose. Right? But if you've committed your life to Jesus as your Savior, even though you've lost some of your saltiness, you can regain it. There's renewal, revitalization, you can be revitalized through Jesus to be as salty as you once were and as one of his should be. So you may have heard the question before, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you among your peers that you do life with day in and day out on a weekly basis, whether work, family, whatever, Hypothetically, if you were on trial to convict you as a Christian, would there be enough evidence? That's convicting because I know as the gospel fact there are times in my life that I have not been. I've professed Christ and then walked in a way that was unworthy of Christ. I may be the only one and that's okay, I'm fine with that. But can they see Christ in you? Are they surprised to find out that you're a Christian? So this is a tough lesson, right? This is, this is hard to hear. It's uncomfortable. Right? But our goal as Christians is not to be undisturbed by Jesus. Our goal as Christians is to discover the truths of the Bible, right? The truths for our life. Our world pushes the belief in this prosperity gospel that nearly everyone will get to go to heaven. Maybe not mass murderers, maybe not really, really bad people, but most everyone, if we're good, and believe that there is some higher power, you know, because Jesus is love, we'll get to go to heaven. The message of Jesus is entirely opposite to that. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verses 23 and 24, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? 
he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I will tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. And again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Brothers and sisters, the crowd of Christians, uh, according to uh, demographers, numbers in the billions. It literally worldwide numbers in the billions. Consider how many of those are actually following Jesus and how many are not. How many will think that they're going through the narrow gate, but will never be able to find their way to it? And this could be troubling, right? This can disturb our theologies, our comfort zones. But we need to, we have to understand the truth of God's word that's in this book. So this crowd that's traveling with Jesus, he, he told them your allegiance must be to me completely. Every other allegiance must pale before it. He said, you must be constantly ready to die for me if necessary as you follow me. You must count the cost before you start to determine if you are committed enough to follow me. If you realize that you aren't, then don't even begin. You must give up everything you have to follow me. You must retain the distinctive flavor of uncompromised disciples. And I wonder what the crowd did whenever he challenged them in this way, whenever he blew their mind with all that he just talked about and what we studied, how do you think they reacted? Do you think there were groups of people just falling off left and right, going back home, deciding that that's not for them? I would say so, but then I consider how many more were challenged by his words and convicted to a higher committal than what they were before to go all in for Jesus. And I wonder this morning what you're thinking. Is the cost of discipleship too much for you? Or has it stirred something in you where you say, yes, Lord, I can give you everything that I've got. It's all yours. So as I was considering the cost of discipleship and the verse in 1830 of the book of Matthew that says, my yoke is easy and burden is light. The contrast of what that means between the two. And the answer is this, the cost of discipleship is high. Like I, like I told you, it will cost you everything you've got and more so. However, what you gain from a relationship with Jesus, if you calculate the cost, far outweighs it. Whenever we go through these trials and hardships that I was talking about, even as Christians, just as any human would, we have hope. We have Jesus to go through it with us. So we lean on his promises. We lean on Jesus to minister to us whenever we're hurt and broken and need healing. So although the cost of discipleship is extravagant, the rewards from walking that close to Jesus are far greater. So as the praise band makes our way back up here, we'll close with this. Are you challenged this morning? Is there something in your life, just one thing, that's holding you back from Jesus? It might be 15 things. 
But if you can put your finger on one thing or many and just give it up to Jesus, say, Lord, forgive me. I've put this in priority over you for so long. Forgive me for my unwillingness to let it go. But now I'm all yours. And that's the next step. And you can't get to that if you've not completed the first step, which is salvation through Jesus. If there's anyone here this morning and you've heard the words of Jesus and the call from Jesus to the discipleship, know that the cost is great, but the benefits are far greater. You can have a Savior who loves you unconditionally, regardless of the sins that you've committed. All you've got to do to be wrapped up in his loving arms is to come, confess your sin, and profess him as Lord and Savior over your life. And the Bible says you'll be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can see that you are seeking to bring us farther along the journey. We want to walk at our own pace, free to take whatever side trails beckon. But you are insisting on being the leader. It is non-negotiable. Lord, I've learned long ago that I can't rely on my own will and determination. I am weak. Father, so today I call upon you afresh for help to follow you faithfully. Forgive my sins of willfulness and selfishness. Forgive my grasping at the props of the world. Forgive my flimsy excuses. Restore me to the full saltiness of one of your own. Have mercy on me, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen.